You are listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast from Freedom Fellowship Church in Tontytown, Arkansas. Our mission is to love God, love others, and serve both. And now let's listen in to this week's sermon. So what we're going to do is we're going to continue in the same account that Nate started last week. So Nate covered Acts chapter 3, that account of the man who was crippled since birth for 40 years was healed by the name of Jesus, but it was through the hands of Peter and John. So that account is still continuing. And so we're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse number 1. It says, while Peter, Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. So, this group, kind of in everything that you see, the the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees, that group is known as the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish high court. And so, in verse number two, it says that they were very disturbed, meaning they taught one thing, but then they see this miracle through the hands of the apostles, but it's the working of the Lord. And they see that and they become very disturbed that they were teaching people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. Now they had issue with this for two reasons. Number one, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe that once you take your last breath, that you become worm food. There is nothing beyond that. So they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But what they did believe in was only the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those are also known as the books of Moses. That's only what they believed in. So anything that any of the prophets talked about, they didn't believe in that. And that's important because we're going to talk about that here in just a little while. So the first reason is they didn't believe in the resurrection. So when someone is preaching the resurrection of a Jewish king, they're like, whoa, no, I don't believe in that. Kind of like the boogeyman, I don't believe in him, so he's not real. The other reason was they cozied up to Rome because they were in charge of the Jews, so they maintained their influence. So they're going to stay buddy-buddy with the people in Rome. But they also, as we're going to see at the end of, of this passage today, they didn't want the Jews talking about a king coming back to life because that could be a threat to Rome. So you see why they were very disturbed of why they were preaching and teaching resurrection of the dead. So let's continue in verse number three. So what was their response? They arrested them. And since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. Now this is a direct uh, link from the message, the sermon that Peter brought that Nate preached on last week. So Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3, there was a response to that. They heard Peter's message that they, the Jews, killed the one 
talking about Christ, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent to be the redeemer of mankind. So that's why Peter's sermon, I say Nate's sermon, but Nate preached on it last week, but it's, it's Peter's sermon when he drew that parallel saying the Old Testament prophesied Messiah, you killed him. He was that fulfillment. The one that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent, you killed him. Peter also pointed out that this Messiah, talking about Jesus, was holy and righteous, and also that he was the author, author of life. People responded to that. Again, not to rehash Nate's message, but Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, stood up and spoke boldly, and he preached a fantastic sermon, and the Holy Spirit was clearly at work not just on the day of Pentecost, but also in chapter 3 and chapter 4, and it is going to continue in our study through Acts. But 2,000 people, in addition to the 3,000 already, heard that and responded. And it says uh, 2,000 men. That could be, that doesn't number women and children who responded. So that number of 5,000 as this early church could be much, much larger. But we see how the Holy Spirit is building this church, that it is convicting people. And we see that people hear the message and they believed it, according to chapter 4. So the number of men who believed now totaled to be 5,000. So let's keep going. Verse number 7. They brought in the two disciples, talking about Peter and John, and demanded by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, watch this in verse 8. Again, we see the, the common language. Filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let's stop right there. I don't have this in the notes or a slide for it. But Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of people think that's a one-time thing, especially if you come out of a charismatic or a Pentecostal background. It is a one-time thing, and you are good to go from there on out. If you look back at the original Greek in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think of like a sailboat going across the water. There has to be constant wind that pushes that sail that pushes that in turn pushes that boat the filling of the holy spirit is a continual thing it's not a one-time event or experience that you have to do in order to do this other thing it is when paul writes that it is a continual filling of the holy spirit and so when you see peter with his boldness he continues to pray for that boldness as we're going to see next week uh, further down in chapter 4, they pray specifically for boldness, but it is that continual filling of the Holy Spirit that prompts him to do this. And so he asks them and says, okay, you really want to know how this guy was healed? I'm about to lay it out plain as day for you. Look at verse number 10. Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, 
but whom God raised from the dead. Verse 11, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, Peter, this sermon in, uh, I don't know if it's a sermon or not, but his response to the Sanhedrin is the same messaging that was in chapter three. That his, his sermon, when he was preaching to all of those people, number one, he is the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah. Number two, you killed him. You who he is talking to killed him. There is no other name under heaven which we must be saved. So Peter is making the case that Jesus is the linchpin for all of humanity. So I want you to zoom out kind of on your, your brain's camera, bird's eye view of redemption and humanity. What we know is God's redemptive work. God creates man, man falls in the Garden of Eden. There is a separation from the Father. Our unrighteousness, our unholiness with a holy and righteous God. There is a disconnect. So there has to be the perfect sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous requirement, and that was the person of Jesus Christ. So Christ became that once and for all sacrifice, okay? Now there is redemption found only in Christ. That is what it refers to there in verse 11, the stone that you builders, talking about Israel, has rejected has now become the cornerstone. So think about it this way. If you're building an arch, that there's going to be one stone that kind of fits everything together. That's the cornerstone or the capstone. Jesus is that. In God's plan of redemptive work, Jesus Christ is kind of that, that linchpin, that final piece that, uh, that finishes that arch that allows it to stay sturdy. In verse number 12, says there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And we're going to talk more about that here in just a second. But I want to continue in verse number 13. It says the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. That is a witness from the Holy Spirit working through Peter that is convicting these people. For they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Watch this in verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. So here we see these guys are just jaws dropped open like, okay. Clearly, there was a crippled man who for 40 years he'd been begging. Now he's standing there dancing the, the old soft shoe in front of these guys. I got a little bit of a smirk. See, I told you, I told you. Caught her sleeping. Uh, so he's standing there. The proof is there. And they're even going to say, okay, we, there is no doubt that a miracle has happened here. So watch their response in verse 16. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. 
We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. Now here is part of the problem. And I say part of the problem. We can't deny that they, these two guys, these two ordinary men performed this miracle. When what was their response? How did you do it? The name of Jesus. They're, they are pointing people to Jesus, yet these Sanhedrin are looking kind of with their, their earthly minds, what they can see, hear, touch, you know, that kind of thing. They are not seeing the bigger picture. They are not seeing that this is God who did this miracle. Verse 17, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda, ouch, any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them to never again, uh, commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, I love this, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them, watch this, without starting a riot. For this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. A lot going on right there, but what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break this down into three easily digestible pieces. Ms. Barbara, can we put up the axe graphic? Just the plain axe. There you go. So I want to bring this back to the main overarching theme of why we're going through the book of Acts. Just to recap, when we went through Luke, it was God's plan for salvation. That was kind of the, the tagline that we looked at. And so as we continue to go through Acts, I want us to have this kind of emblazoned in our mind that this is a blueprint, not necessarily a step-by-step of how to um, build the church, but it is a blueprint, a, a how-to guide that we can, as, as 21st century Christians, as New Covenant believers, we can look and draw inspiration from some of these things. And again, the last time I was up here when we did a, an overview of Acts, one of the things that I said is the narrative, which is the text that we are reading, is not necessarily the norm. So when you see that in the example that I used was Peter's shadow healed someone, if you go out like Punxsutawney Phil and try to get your shadow to kind of cross on someone and see if they get healed, that's not how that works. We are not Peter. We are not John, we are not the apostles, but the Lord remains the same. So again, God's blueprint for his church. So the first point that I want to make is our witness is powerful. And so much like Peter and John, when they are out there in Solomon's portico, when they are out there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, people are not always going to like it. There are some people, it rubs them the wrong way. They may be a different religion, and they say, oh, I'm offended when I hear about Jesus because that's offensive to me as a Muslim or as a Jew or you know, an atheist, which, by the way, most people who say they're atheists are not atheists. They are agnostic. It means that they know 
They're too smart to fall for that old hokey Jesus thing. They're too smart for that. So they're actually agnostic. Atheistic means I believe absolutely there is no God. But an agnostic says, I don't think there's a God, but it's not the God that you worship kind of thing. So anyways, you get that for free. Not everyone's going to like it, and it may not be extreme persecution that you face as Christians or that we face. It may be that you are not going to get thrown in jail, but it may be some other type of persecution that we come across. Another thing I want to point out, if we can pull back up verse 21, I want to point out real quick the priorities of the Sanhedrin. Again, they were looking and they were seeing that, okay, it was Peter and John who actually did this miracle when they're saying, no, 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 it wasn't us. It was God. It was the name of Jesus. You guys have got to listen. It was the name of Jesus, not us. That's what they were saying. But I want you to see their priorities um, of the Sanhedrin. So look at verse 21. It says, the council then threatened them further but they finally let them go because they did not know how to punish them without starting a riot, for everyone was praising God. Now, as followers of God, the Sanhedrin should have been ready for praise at the top of their lungs that the God that they worship sent the Messiah and all of this is, is beginning to play out. But they didn't. First of all, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he says that he was. But they should have been celebrating and worshiping with other people, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is something I never caught until this, this go-round when I was looking at this. It's like, oh, wow. They should have been like, yeah, God, yes, you did it again. But they weren't. They were trying to downplay. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus or this healing, this, this new thing called the church, they didn't want anything to do with it. In fact, they wanted to kind of tamp it down. Why? To stop a riot from happening. Their priorities were way off. This should have been a time of celebration for the Sanhedrin, but it wasn't. Because it wasn't, they didn't come up with it. They didn't, they have that power over the rest of the people. If they didn't have that power, they wanted nothing to do with it. So, again, back to that original point, our witness is powerful. Things like this begin to happen, that, that God begins to get um, his praise. And so these people should have been in on the celebration, but they weren't. The second point, Jesus is the only way. Now, there's a, a fancy term you may have heard about it. It's Christian universalism. Universalism basically says doesn't matter. Everybody's going to get to heaven. Let's all sing Kumbaya, you know, that type of thing. Universalism is really antithetical to what our Bible tells us. Because we see, I'm not sure where it was, um, verse number 12 there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Also, let me bring to, to mind 
John 14, verse 6. Anybody know that one off the top of their head? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are two verses just off the top of our heads that says there is one way. There is only one way. Again, when we talk about the big picture of God's redemptive work, without Jesus, there is no salvation. There are not enough good deeds. There's not enough perfect church attendance that can get you into God's good graces. Both of my grandmothers went to church religiously, pun intended. They went every single week. They could not pray me into heaven. I'm sure they tried, but they couldn't. Why? Salvation is for every single person individually. It is not something that works for a family. It is personal salvation, and it's a good reminder for us. So the the first point that I made was um, that our witness is powerful. Number two, Jesus is the only way. This should be almost like a call to arms for us when we go outside of these church walls, that we should be reminded of these things, that when we go talk to people, it is out of love that we are preaching Christ to them. We want them to be saved. We want them to have that personal salvation. If we were to go out there and say, well, you don't really need Jesus. He's, he's a good guy, but you don't really need him to get to heaven. That is doing them a disservice because that is not what our Bible preaches. Nor should any Christian anywhere ever get into this, uh, I would say, demonic understanding of universalism. That, and there's a lot of people who teach universalism, that we all serve the same God, God and uh, the God of Christianity and Judaism and Islam are all the same. No, they are not. There is one way into heaven. There is one way out of the mouth of Peter, one way under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Number three, we are to be God-pleasers and not man-pleasers. So Peter and John in this, they were commanded, don't go preach the name of Jesus. So that was a, and and we could do a a whole side thing about this, um, about government and uh, governing authorities and how we should follow them or not follow them. But I want to look just at what scripture says about this. Sometimes rules come down from government but are not always meant to be followed. And I want to be very clear, very clear. Gail's laughing. Very clear. Don't go out and say, I learned at church that I don't have to follow that 45 mile an hour speed limit out there. The guy preaching today said, not all rules are meant to be followed. No, don't do that. But I want to look at at four examples in scripture that show you that a governing authority will set a a rule or a decree or something like that that is meant to be followed, but that they don't follow because the Lord was telling them not to or there was another reason. So, I don't have uh, scriptures. I I wish I would have, but I didn't think about this till just now. Um, But Exodus chapter 1, think back to when... 
Pharaoh said, you know what, let's, let's kill all of the newborn boys, the young males, let's kill them. The midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders, and they allowed the boys to live too. Everybody remember that? If not, write down Exodus chapter 1, because I'm going to give you the second example which ties into it. Hebrews 11.23 tells us it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. So that was Moses' parents. They're like, okay, this boy is special. We can't do what the governing authorities are telling us to do. We know that God has sent this special child. So depending on how you look at that, either they were obedient to God or they were disobedient to the governing authorities. So the same thing when they placed baby Moses in the reeds and the midwives found him. Yeah, all of that. Okay, let's keep going. Also in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 3, you have Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They refused to worship the golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, if you don't bow down and worship him, what's going to happen? We're going to throw you in that big old pizza oven, which they did. Thank you, Tom. They refused to go with the governing decree. They stood for, it wasn't a, a personal vendetta or something about that. It was the Lord. They were giving glory to the Lord. Now, the fourth example, speaking of Daniel, King Darius outlawed prayer and Daniel got thrown where? The lion's den. Why? Because he prayed several times a day. He said, I know that there's a governing decree, but I'm going to sing praises to my Lord. So there's four examples, not to mention what we're looking at in Acts chapter four. So that makes five, five examples of governing authorities saying, don't do this, yet these people of God do the opposite. They say the old adage is there's three things you should never talk about. Politics, religion, and money. Those are three things that you're never supposed to talk about. Yet for us as Christians, it is our job to share Christ, to spread his message of hope, salvation, and eternal life. That message right there may make some people uncomfortable. But again, we are called to be God-pleasers and not man pleasers. That was the third point. The second point was Jesus is the only way. Number one, our witness needs to remain powerful. Again, that witness is not, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to tell people about Christ. You say, from my point of view, here's what God has done for me. You don't have to go in and be a Christian apologist, which is not apologizing for the Bible, it is simply defending the faith. You don't have to have all the answers. That's okay. It is our job as, as believers to go and share, here's what God has done for me. Here's some simple truths. He is the only way. There is no other name in, under heaven in which we must be saved. Again, we're to be God-pleasers and not man-pleasers. And we are to be obedient to him. 
because we don't make disciples by keeping the message of the cross to ourselves. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I absolutely love it. It's one of those verses that just clicks with you. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of life. The gospel, the message of God's redemptive work with humanity is powerful. There is power in that. That's what we want to go and share with everyone that we come in contact with. Our neighbors, our friends, the person at the gas station, the person in the grocery store. We don't want to go and beat them over the head with the Bible, but we want to share the message of hope, grace, and love because we're first shown that by the Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has gone forth here today. Father, as we leave here today, we ask that your Holy Spirit just continually fill us, that we don't do things based on what we think is, is best, but Father, that we follow your leading and your prompting. And Father, we do things for your glory and not for our own. And Father, we just ask that you allow us to remain bold like Peter and like John. And Father, that we are reminded that our witness is extremely powerful. And Father, that we remind ourselves that Jesus is the only way. That when we see a, a opposition to that, Father, that we stand firmly on your word. And Lord, lastly, that we remain God-pleasers and not man-pleasers. The gospel may make people uncomfortable but that's okay. Father, we are doing it not in and of ourselves, not for some personal gain, but Father, we are doing it for eternal reasons, and that is to share that message of salvation through Christ alone. And Father, we just ask that you use us as instruments to help further your kingdom. And Father, we do all of this for your glory because you are absolutely worthy of it. And Father, we say thank you for it. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Fellowship audio podcast. We are located at 990 West Henry de Tonti Boulevard in Tonti Town, Arkansas. You can check us out on the web at freedomfellowship.com or you can find us on social media by searching Freedom Fellowship NWA. We hope you have a great week and that you live out the mission of the church, which is to love God love others, and serve both.